as we came to praise God this morning. Let's continue to worship as we read in his word. We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarrel, quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Go ahead and be seated. Father, thank you so much that you are God Almighty, that your love for us sent your son Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins. And because of his resurrection and ascension, you now have left us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to remind us of your truth, to guide us into truth, and to empower us to live in accordance with your will. Be with Greg as he teaches us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. morning. I just want to remind you that Saturday, right here in the Worship Center at 2 p.m., we'll have the memorial service for Mary Jo Flenner, and uh, we look forward to having as many of you out who would like to uh, remember her as well as glorify the Lord as we take comfort in his presence. Saturday, 2 p.m. Romans 13 8 through 14. I don't know what kind of an alarm person you are. There's two kinds of alarm people. So you got to put yourself in one of these two categories. Maybe you say that there's a third category, and I say, no, there isn't. There's two. Here it is. One person uh, sets their alarm a little bit early or not, I don't know, and then when it goes off, they, they hit the snooze button. And they take some sense of satisfaction in sleeping in just like nine minutes Longer. That's a whole other theological question is why did the alarm clock makers decide that the appropriate snooze amount is nine minutes? I'm sure there was extensive studies. So maybe you're a snoozer. Hit snooze, you hit snooze, you hit snooze. Then you finally get up and now it's a frantic, mad dash to try and get ready. Then you have the other kind of alarm person who decides the night before, you know, I want to sleep a little bit later and I don't want to be interrupted in my late sleeping, so I will choose in advance how much I want to sleep in, and so I'll set my clock appropriately, and when the alarm goes off, I'll do something crazy. I'll get up. Now, most of the time, God in his grace and kindness has seen fit to work out sanctification in your life by ensuring you are married to whatever the opposite is of you. Right? I mean, I could be wrong on this, but that is one of the ways that, so you hit the alarm, you hit the snooze, you hit the snooze or whatever, you get up and now it's a mad dash. The other kind of person, I mean, and I don't know if these are all the same, but it's the same when bills come in. You have two kind of bill payers. 
One, the bill comes in, oh, it's due on the 10th. Well, I will pay it on the 9th, maybe the 10th. Then you have another kind of person when the bill comes in, it gets paid because now it's handled. And again, likely in a marriage situation, those two kinds of people are married to one another. What we discover in this passage, why are we talking about this? Because it is time to wake up. That's what the Bible is going to tell us this morning. It's time to wake up. Now, whether you're a snooze kind of person or a not snooze kind of person, every person, according to the book of Romans, needs to recognize down in verse 11, you know the time, the hour has come, it's time to wake up. And we're going to look at in two particular ways in which believers are called to wake up. So we're going to begin in verse 8, time to wake up, your loan is due. In fact, in this case, your obligation is to love one another. Time to wake up, your loan is due, the obligation is due, and that means it's time to want to love one another. I don't know if you know this kind of loan. There's a certain kind of loan you can get. It's called a balloon mortgage. And what this mortgage is done is you borrow money to buy a piece of property and you have small monthly payments compared with the overall price of the property. And you pay that usually they're about five years long. You pay smaller than normal monthly payments. But at the end of five years, you've got to pay the thing off. So there's a balloon payment at the end. And usually this is a mortgage instrument that's used by builders or investors. What they do is buy a piece of property with low monthly payments, improve the piece of property, and then before the five-year time is up, you sell that piece of property, and with your profits, you're able to pay off your balloon payment. And that all works out really, really well until you can't sell your property. You got no cash because... You put all your cash in the property and that balloon payment is now due. And what the Bible is telling us here in Romans 13 verse 18, verse 8 is our balloon payment is due. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's time to recognize our obligation and our obligation in this case is to one another to love one another. What the Bible is calling us to do here is we should endeavor, not be passive, but we should endeavor to meet our relational obligations to one another. We should be faithful in keeping our word together to one another, but especially be obligated in an ongoing relationship with one another to love one another. Look at verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So this really is a command. He's calling us here to love one another. And the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that this fulfills the law. Then he goes on to describe a couple of things. Verse 9, here's the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe it seems obvious, but let's at least make the obvious point. Love excludes unfaithfulness. In the marriage relationship, it excludes adultery. But in friendships and close relationships within the body of Christ, it excludes unfaithfulness to one another. Love for one another excludes murder. You don't kill somebody that you love. And we must remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, hating another in your heart is tantamount to murdering them. You don't steal from somebody you love. If you care about somebody, you don't take things from them that don't belong to you and keep them as your own. And finally, it says, you shall not covet. 
A loving relationship is not defined by envy. It is somewhat exclusive in relationship for me to be able to love somebody that I envy or to have care for somebody when I begrudge them their success. You have any good friends that have been successful in their marriage or in their career or with their finances or with their health and you begrudge them their success? It is very difficult to define that as a loving relationship if in my heart I would prefer they did less successfully in their work or their home or in their finances. And these things, maybe it seems obvious to us, you don't kill people you love generally, right? You don't hate people you love. You don't envy people you love. Okay, now it's getting a little tricky. And what do we do here? Because the Bible tells us that a, a love relationship within the body of Christ is a fulfillment of the law, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19 is where that is quoted from. Leviticus 19 verse 18, the Bible says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here in the Old Testament, Mosaic law, the Bible tells the people of Israel, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus picks up on this in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. The Pharisees came to Jesus to question him and to test him. And the Pharisees asked him this question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus told him this, you shall love the Lord your God with, your, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus here is trying to communicate and help us understand what is the law about. The law is about learning what God is like and loving him as well as loving our neighbor. Now the religious leaders and really religious people of the world over want to figure out the Bible says to do this, so what is the bare minimum necessary required activities to meet the obligation of what the Bible says to do, right? Here's what Jesus answered. This is Luke chapter 10. A lawyer, ah, sorry, there's lawyers in the Bible, I don't have to tell you. A lawyer stood up, there's a religious lawyer, somebody who's really good at looking at the Bible and deciding what other people ought to do. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him, yeah, what's the law tell you? What's the law tell you how to do? And he answers the same way Jesus answered in the passage I read earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your uh, strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, nice job. Go do that, and you'll be fine. And then the guy asked this question. You know the question. You're familiar with this passage, right? Who is my neighbor. Immediately, he betrays his motive. The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, and maybe I can reduce the number of people who can be defined as my neighbor to the two or three people I know. Because the lower, the smaller the number of people I have to actually love, the better the chances I'm going to be able to pull this off. Jesus then tells the parable of the prodigal son to show this guy and all of us, you're asking the wrong question. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the right question. A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Have you heard this story before? Good. I'm going to keep going. A Samaritan, you got to do it right. A Samaritan, boo, what? A Samaritan? Okay, good. Now you're getting it. As he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. What? That's crazy. Samaritans don't do that. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds. He poured on oil, and he poured on wine, and then he set him in on his own animal. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, take care of him, and whatever, uh, when I come back, if you spend more than that, I'll pay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the answer, the Samaritan. Love your neighbor as yourself. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, how am I neighborly? That's the question that Jesus wants us to answer. Jesus said, go and do likewise. So Jesus' teaching on the law was based on something changing in the heart of the individual where there is a more than normal love for God and love for neighbor, meaning neighborly love for all I might encounter. In Psalm 147.3, we have a sort of allusion to uh, this ministry of Jesus when he comes. Psalm 147.3 talks about the coming Messiah. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in a synagogue. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus in that synagogue said, These words are filled, uh, fulfilled in your hearing today. So one of the things we discover about Jesus, when you look at that Samaritan who was neighborly, Jesus is saying the mission to redeem sinners through the cross and through the resurrection is a neighborly ministry. It's a ministry of loving your neighbor. So if you want to wonder, what does it look like to love your neighbor? You look at the ministry of Christ to save sinners from their rebellion. In fact, look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, my voice is changing. Jesus says this about the law. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to do what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' mission to redeem sinners was simply this. He came loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
and loving his neighbor as himself. How did he do that? By making himself a sacrifice on the cross. The Bible tells us he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead that we might have hope of resurrection for all who would trust in him. What does it mean to be neighborly? Jesus defined it. While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus defines the terms of loving your neighbor through his own ministry of redemption. He calls us to experience that love from him and then express that love to others. So who are the others? Well, for Jesus, it was sinners. And if we are going to be like Christ, that means we are going to express neighborly love to those who don't deserve it. Neighborly love not to our close friends and family, although we should do that, but also to those who are difficult and challenging to love. When we experience this kind of love from Christ, that is when we can express this kind of love to those around us and to express neighborly love uh, to others. <clears throat> okay, let's go back to Romans. Excuse me, Romans 13, beginning uh, in verse 10. Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what happens is Jesus fully and completely... Oh, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Right. Oh, that's good. That's Medford water. I love Medford water. No, I'm serious. Best water in the world. You know that... You don't think I'm serious. I have a strongly held opinion about Medford water. There's Medford water, and then there's sludge. Just, it's just how I roll. If you're on a well, I'm sorry. Medford well water is not quite the same. as, And we've got to move along. Easily distracted squirrel. Love, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we've already covered this in Romans, so we won't gonna, aren't going to cover it in great detail. But, but this is how... the Jesus' fulfilling of the law works for us. It's two ways it works for us. Number one, Jesus was completely obedient to the Father in his life. So he was able to fully accomplish all of the obligations of the law. And Romans tells us then when he died on the cross, he nailed the requirements of the law to the cross with him. When we put our faith in Christ, we are crucified with Christ. And therefore, the law no longer has any say on our life. So from a legal standpoint, having died with Christ by faith, we no longer have to keep the law. Jesus kept it for us. On the other hand, there is still an obligation to be like Christ. That is to express the fulfillment of the law in us, meaning this. Since Jesus was neighborly to us, meaning loving sinners, we would expect that having been redeemed by the gospel, we would express that same kind of neighborly love to those around us. Therefore, we fulfill the law, that is, have the law worked out in us by the power of Christ when we love our neighbor as ourselves. One of the anticipated transformation that happens in the gospel in our life is we love people we wouldn't normally love. We show neighborly kindness to people that before Christ we wouldn't show neighborly kindness to. In Christ, we experience the love of God on our hearts that we don't deserve, so we no longer only reserve our love for those who deserve it. Instead, we gladly give it away to others. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Who's the neighbor? What does it mean to be neighborly? Jesus would tell us. God's grace to us in Jesus 
is the how of this love. I want, I want you to think about this. Um, in, in your joints, you have cartilage, like in your knees, in your hips. And, uh, and you know when you've got a little problem with the cartilage situation because it hurts. Then you go in and, and you get that thing swapped out. And you, you get a new knee or something like that. So when the cartilage goes away, it starts to bone on bone. You know, apparently that hurts. Same thing in a car engine. You run a car engine without oil for very long, the, the engine will seize because the metal rubbing against the metal will cause it to overheat and it, it'll seize up. The oil uh, is between the metal providing the cushion necessary for it to operate without seizing up. The same way uh, the shocks work on your car when you go over a speed bump. You don't feel the entire weight of the speed bump because the, the cushioning of it. So the grace of Christ works in our heart in such a way that we realize Jesus loved us because he's gracious, not because we fit the mold. So we can, we can have a relationship with God where there's leeway, where we know that we're going to mess up, but he still receives us because of the blood of Christ. If the relationship we have with God is defined by grace, that is, we can interact with him knowing we're not dialed in then why do we require one another to be so dialed in? Sometimes in the body of Christ, it feels like you've got to walk this tightrope. And you've got to meet all these these expectations. And if if I go slightly to this side, I'm going to make this person upset. I'm going to go slightly to this side. We're always managing these relationships where we don't know who we've made mad this week. In the body of Christ, it's supposed to be defined by this grace. One of the things that happens in our hearts as Christ followers... Over time, our ability to receive people gets bigger, not smaller. Maturity in Christ does not decrease the number of people you're willing to spend time with. It increases who you're willing to spend time with because you provide people more leeway than you used to. Because 10 years into your relationship with Christ, you were reminded again how much grace you needed. And so you offer that grace to others. This is what the body of Christ is supposed to be defined as. Unfortunately, over time, it seems like in the body of Christ, it's these uh, high-intensity relationships where we've got to be dialed in and make sure what we say or don't say or what we wear or don't wear or what we eat or drink at the restaurant or what we don't eat or drink at the restaurant. And we're always managing expectations. That is not a culture of grace. That is a culture of law. And nobody can handle it. Nobody wants to handle it, do they? This is why some people say, I feel more accepted at work than at church. It should be the opposite. Because the culture of the body of Christ is defined by the grace of Christ in the life of the individual, applied to our neighbors. This is the place where we come and should feel most at home being who we are. Is that true? Is this the place you feel most at home, being transparent with those around you? If it's not the case, we need to first look at our own hearts. Why are we so restrictive with our grace? Why can't we receive others the way Jesus has received us? It's time to wake up. Our loan is due. Jesus is going to come back at the dawn of the age, which is sooner than we think. And one of the things he's going to look at is, did you operate in relationship neighborly, receiving others by grace? Okay, let's keep moving on. While grace is the air we breathe in Christ by his grace, uh, his love uh, is unconditional, but 
what we have from God is freedom from sin's dominion, not freedom to pursue sin's pleasures. So on the one hand, here in verses uh, 8 through 10, it's time to wake up. Our loan is due to love. Here in verses 11, 14, it's time to wake up. The day is dawning. Live holy. I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the book, Lord of the Flies. These boys are on this island and sort of the culture of what's going on just descends into total chaos. A couple of kids get killed. Somebody has a conch. It gets worse and worse and worse, total chaos. Finally, at the end of the movie, uh, the great uh, uh, you know, scene, the climax of the movie is the kids running through the forest and, and uh, one group of kids is going to kill another group of kids and they have face paint on. Rawr, and then he stumbles onto the beach and they're standing on the beach are the military. They're rescuers, really. And all of a sudden now, this chaos has been redefined by the presence of authoritative strength. And what happens is the boys who were running for their life begin weeping because in some sense relief, but also the mourning that is now overwhelming them for the losses they've incurred. Then you have the boys with, uh, who are on the team, let's kill everybody. And all of a sudden they realize that something happened in there. It, without this point of reference of this authority structure on the, the beach, and they come in, oh, wait a minute, what, what, what are we doing? What are we thinking? We went crazy. Suddenly, every, everyone realizes what's going on. Suddenly, the lights come on. The, the, the lights reveal what's, what's really going on, and everybody is feeling mournful and ashamed. When the lights come on, the lights reveal the darkness that is being hidden. Right now, before the return of Christ, we live in the dark, but believers in this passage are called to live in the dark as though it were light. And the time is right now to live as those who live in holiness. Look at verse 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. This is the appropriate time in the message to say that. I don't want to wake you. If you're getting some good rest, knock yourself out. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the work of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here's the situation. Time's up. The dawn, it's right here. It's dawn. It's almost here. The time is up. It's almost done. And so now that we know, since we know the sunrise is coming, we're to put off the deeds that are done in darkness. Meaning, uh, the meaning here is very straightforward. In darkness, we do things we don't want people to see. Shameful things. Things we're embarrassed about. And when the light comes on and reveals everything that's going on, there's going to be a great uh, shame, so to speak. And what the Bible is calling believers to do by faith in Christ is to say, I want to live my life as one of the light, who lives as though I'm in the light. So when the light comes on, my deeds are revealed to be glorifying to Christ, to, to be ready, to be watchful. Look at Matthew 25, verse 1, a parable of Jesus. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like this. There's ten virgins who took their lamps and went down to meet the bridegroom. <clears throat> Excuse me, bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. And just so you know, they would have these weddings in the middle of the night. The wedding sort of started when the bridegroom showed up, and he could show up sort of any time. So the wedding party would hang out and wait for him to show up. 
And we have a contrast here. Five foolish virgins, five wise virgins. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. That is extra oil. But the wise ones, they took their flasks of oil with their lamps. So they had extra oil. As the bridegroom was delayed. What was the bridegroom? Delayed. What does delayed mean? Later than I want. Now, that's the perspective of the wedding guest. The bridegroom is delayed. From the perspective of the bridegroom, what is his perspective? To quote a character in Lord of the Rings, I will arrive precisely when I mean to. So from the perspective of the, of the groom, he's not delayed. He arrived exactly on time. So the bridegroom is delayed, and they all became drowsy and slept, just like at church. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. All those virgins, all ten virgins rose to trim their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise said, listen, there's not enough to go around. You go to the store and buy some. While they were going to buy the oil, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, open the door to us. And he said, I don't know who you are. Here's Jesus' command from this parable. Watch, therefore. What's the command? Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch, therefore, is the command. Five were ready. They lived prepared for the dawn. And five were foolish, living as though the dawn may or may not ever come. We must be people who are watchful. We must be people who are watchful. In Romans chapter 13, watchfulness among the, in the, among the believers is living as people of the light all the time, even though it's dark. That's watchfulness. It's not sitting on your porch with a glass of lemonade, with looking at the eastern horizon, praying for the return of Jesus. Watchfulness, at least in this context, is living as in the light, even though it's darkness. Let's look at a couple of good examples of what living in darkness looks like. And you're like, okay, let's see what they are. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Here's some things that are not proper in the daytime. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. What do we do in the dark when no one's watching? We fulfill the desires and appetites of the flesh. What do we do when no one's watching? We decide what we hunger for and we seek to satisfy that hunger. That's why it's done in the dark, because we don't want anybody to know, least of all, the Lord. Immorality, drunkenness, quarreling, envy. These are all things seeking to satisfy my own fleshly desires. Even as a believer, we are not raised from the dead yet. So we still have in us this remaining sin, this remaining propensity to pursue the appetites of our flesh. And living in darkness means if I hunger for it, I ought to have it. If I hunger for it, I ought to have it. My goal and mission in life in the darkness is to satisfy the appetites of the flesh. And the Bible says, having been saved by grace through the blood of Christ, we are called to live as those who are in the light, not in the darkness. In the darkness, we do what is shameful, and in the light, we pursue holiness. 
Verse 14 tells us the opposite of that. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a garment. Put on like a garment the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we need to recognize as believers, we have been made righteous by Christ when we trust him. Are we righteous before the Father when we trust Jesus? Yes, the Bible tells us we have Jesus righteousness. But now what's going on, it's saying as a believer, then let's live in that righteousness. We have been made righteous. Now our manner of walk, our manner of living is to be characterized by the person of Christ. Having been made righteous, let's live righteous. What are one of the ways we do that? A strategy, make no provision for the flesh. I don't know if you've ever tried to lose weight, watch what you're eating. What's one of the things you do when you say, oh, I'm going to lose a little weight. I'm going to watch what I eat. I want to, I want to eat healthy. What's one of the things you do? And maybe you didn't do this. I don't know. Well, you stop putting stuff in the house that are sideways of what you want to accomplish. Right? There's one way for me to not eat a bowl of ice cream. There is only one way for me to not eat a bowl of ice cream. And that is for it to not be in the house. That is, that's it. You say, well, you ought to have some self-control. Watch it, judge your pants. Come on. Get off your high horse. Okay, everybody's got their thing, all right? So what he's saying is make no provision for the flesh. Know yourself a little bit. What are the ways that you're, if your flesh has a chance, you're going to go for it. Don't provide your flesh the opportunity. Remove those opportunities. Whether it be sensual uh, and sexual sin, whether it be quarreling and envy, whether it be uh, any of the other things that are, are listed here, drunkenness, make no provision for the flesh. Identify. Well, this is an area that I'm not going to be able to say no. I'm going to cut that out. This, I need to have no opportunity. I need to provide myself some accountability. I need to put up some, some guardrails and, and not provide a, an opportunity for the flesh. Put on Christ and make no provision for my appetites. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Paul says it here as well. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What are we in Christ? Sons of God. We don't have to earn it. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So being in Christ, being identified in Christ, we therefore are sons of God and we wear Christ as a garment. We have his righteousness. What does it mean to live in that wearing of Christ? Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. This is a very familiar passage but maybe you haven't thought along these terms before, of wearing Christ as your garment. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. What we're doing here as we talk about putting on the armor of God is we're recognizing I need Jesus-y kind of stuff in my life. I'm putting on Christ in an intentional way, in particular areas, areas recognizing I need Christ's strength to walk as one who is in the light. Let me read it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Does that sound like a good goal? As a Christian, that should be a good goal. To stand, to withstand in the evil day. Anybody live in, in evil days? Would you like to be able to stand firm in evil days? Good, make no provision for the flesh. And second, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shoes for your feet, putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So what we're looking for in our life is having these characteristics of Christ on us. Taking up the word of God, taking up prayer, being assured in our salvation by wearing the helmet, trusting God, that becomes a shield of faith that we carry with us. This is a a putting on of our life, choosing day in and day out to live our life in Christ, not in our flesh. Not making provision for our flesh, but instead making provision for the work of God to be done in us. The armor of Christ adorning us. Okay, let's go back to Romans chapter 8. We're going to finish with this. What, what part of Romans are we in? Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Time to wake up. Day is dawning. Live holy. The assumption the Apostle Paul here is making, and maybe I should mention this just to be annoying, is by default we make provision for the flesh. And by default, we don't want to pursue holiness and righteousness in Christ because that means not doing what I want. That means loving people who are frustrating. That means saying no to the appetites of my flesh. So the argument here is not, okay, I've got this dialed in. The fact that it's in our Bible means we all struggle with it. And what you probably need to do, probably, I'm trying to be nice. You need to grapple with the areas of your flesh that need, need to be grappled with compromises you've made little areas in that you like to keep in the dark little things nobody will care and they surely will care if they never find out and the question is do you want that to be a reality for you when the lights come on and the bible is calling us as believers to find our satisfaction to find our hope to find our sustenance not in the appetites of the flesh but rather in our savior to actually trust that Jesus is satisfying enough, I don't need the appetites that my flesh is pursuing. What time do you think it is? Of course, everybody nowadays, oh, he's almost here. Jesus, almost here, right? That's, we all say that. He's almost here. He better be coming. The answer of what time you think it is is actually based on the realities of how you're living your faith out. If you stink, if you still think, if you stink, I don't know, that's your deal. <laughs> Sorry. If you still think there is time to do your thing, then you'll do your thing. So the fact is this, if you're doing your thing, you think you got plenty of time. What time is it? What time do you think it is? If your life is all your thing, 
then you think you got plenty of time. The Bible is clear. It is a fool's errand to think Jesus is delayed. You say, well, he hasn't come yet. All right, roll the dice. You do you, bro. But the Bible is clear. My job is to tell you the truth. It is a fool's errand to think he is delayed. And believers, we need to live as those who are in the light. So when the the lights flip on, when Jesus returns, our life is consistent with the nature of our Savior. Okay, next question. Do you love your neighbor? Well, you know, now it's getting kind of quiet. Do you love the people in the body of Christ? Some of them. How do you find out if you love your neighbor? How do you find out if you love the people in the body of Christ? What we first of all need to recognize as we think about love in the body of Christ, this is not merely warm feelings and affections. I would hope it is those things. I would hope you have warm feeling and affections for the people of the body of Christ. But love as expressed by Jesus is service, humility, care, forgiveness, kindness, hospitality, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, graciousness. These are definitions of how love is expressed in the body of Christ. And I would love it if we all did those things naturally because we just feel so warm and fuzzy towards one another. But I've been in the church too long to know if that's true. Sometimes we need to express love because that's what God calls us to do. If we're going to wait to express love as a neighbor, being neighborly till we feel like it, I am really grateful Jesus didn't wait to come till we deserved it. If Jesus would have waited to come, to die on the cross for us till we deserved it, he never would have come. And the definition of love expressed in the body of Christ is the same way because we're doing the same thing. It's to express loving action to others through service and humility and hospitality and forgiveness and kindness, faithfulness, whether we feel it or not. Some of you have done this before and you do realize over the course of time, when you do what God calls us to do as acts of love towards one another, invariably over time, those feelings of affection will come. Okay, finally this. The deeds of darkness seem obvious in verse 13. Let me read them again just because I like to make you feel awkward. Not orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, or jealousy. And so what some of you guys are doing, you're like, you know what, I'm going to pick a couple to make sure I don't do those. So, yeah, I don't, I don't do orgies, so I'm good. <laughs> and that's what you're doing, right? And then some of you are going, wait, there's so, the two of these are not like the others. It's a song from Sesame Street. So you got these fairly what, sort of call, you know, pro-league, you know, sins, you know, orgies and sensuality and drunkenness. And then we throw in something for the church folk, I guess, right? Quarreling and jealousy. What? Those seem a little bit minor league in the sin area. Oh, what's the big deal with including these little, uh, more like character flaws? They're not really, really sins, are they? Galatians 5, 14 and 15. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. We've covered this a number of places this morning. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour one another, one another watch out that you are not consumed 
by one another. Quarreling and jealousy in the body of Christ will destroy a body of believers. It will destroy a body of believers. Quarreling and jealousy, this sense that I must have my way. We're working through a couple of issues here in the church real time. We just went to one service and some of you are coming in and discovering who's been sitting in your seat in the other service. (laughs) Seen some some weapons come out, a couple of knives. I think somebody got shivved last week. Uh, That's not a big deal, right? Everything's fine and dandy until things don't go the way I think they ought to go. Notice here in the Bible, he doesn't say quarreling and jealousy unless you're right. Thank the Lord he didn't wait to come until we finally recognize he is right. He just showed love to his neighbor. If you got something on you, somebody has really, really peeved you off really good, there's a couple of things you should do. Number one, go tell that person they peeved you off. Would you just go tell them? If they're caught in sin... Then the Bible calls us to gently and kindly seek to see them come to repentance, but never a spirit of quarreling and jealousy in the body of believers. We go, and when, even when we know somebody is caught up in a sin, we go to them in, in, in a sense of trepidation, knowing that we ourselves are prone to sin, not in some sort of arrogant, I've got my life dialed in, I'm going to help you realize how, much, how lame you are, sense. The deeds of darkness are obvious in Romans 13, but quarreling and jealousy are just as dangerous, just as destructive, because they are the opposite of what Jesus did for us. What time, it, what time is it? It's time to wake up. Our loan is due to love one another, and the day is dawning, so we should live lives of holiness. Will you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us that you have seen fit to give us a few more minutes here. A few more minutes here to live our lives as lives of faith because we know, God, once we're in heaven, there won't be a need for faith anymore. We'll see with our eyes. This is that one privileged time where we get to live our lives by faith. God, would you give us the privilege of being those who recognize what it means to be a neighbor, expressing love and kindness and generosity to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, even and especially those, Lord, where that doesn't come naturally. God, would you help us in this moment right now? There are some folks here who walked into this room. Some of us even come to church to try and feel clean after a week of sin. God, would you in this moment, by your Holy Spirit, move on us in a way of powerful conviction? Will you help us to recognize how dangerous that sin is? Would you give us the wherewithal by your grace to finally say, Lord, I don't want to make provision for that anymore. As some of us here this morning, God, are riddled and saddled with shame and guilt. God, maybe in this moment you would remind us anew that Jesus paid it all. There's no need for shame and guilt in the life of the believer. But God, give us that sense of conviction where we recognize we want our lives to be lives of the light even before the day dawns. Give us victory over our sin that we may walk in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song?